Section 4 of Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 20, March 16, 1880. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Phipps. Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 20, March 16, 1880. The Little Ships of the Water Streets by James B. Marshall. If the jolly uncle of certain Venetian girls and boys comes home from China and says, Hurrah, children! Let's go take a ride and have a good time! They don't imagine it will be in an open carriage behind swift-footed horses. They would think of a beautiful little ship about 30 feet long, four or five wide, and as light as a cork, called a gondola, which means little ship. It would be painted black, like every other gondola, and the prow would be ornamented with a high, halberd-shaped steel piece, burnished to a dazzling glitter. This steel prow would act as a counterbalance to their rower, who would stand on the after end and row with his face in the direction they wished to be taken. The rowlock would be simply a notched stick, and he would row with one long oar, pushing swiftly along. He would row so gracefully and easily that you might think you could quickly become a good gondolier if you tried. You would change your mind, however, after the laughable experience of rowing yourself overboard several times and admit that rowing a gondola requires no small skill. It was the people called the Veneti who, more than a thousand years ago, settled Venice and invented these little ships. The 15,000 houses of Venice are built on a cluster of islands, over 100 in number, and divided by nearly 150 canals, or water streets. However, one may visit any part of the city without the aid of a gondola, as the islands are joined together by 378 bridges, and between the houses lead narrow, crooked passages, many not wider than the width of one's outspread arms. The canals are salt, and offer, at high tide, fine saltwater bathing. As most of the houses rise immediately from the water, it is not an uncommon sight, at certain hours, to see a gentleman or his children walk down his front door steps arrayed for bathing, and take a header from the lower step. That sounds very funny, but to the Venetians, such proceedings are quite a matter of course. In the lagoon around the city are numerous exasperating sand islands, exposed to view at low tide. The amateur gondolier seeks this lagoon to be safe from scoffers at his clumsy rowing, and often, right in the midst of his getting the knack of it, the tide leaves him stuck fast on a sand island to wait for its return. Excepting the Grand Canal, the canals are narrow and make innumerable sharp turns, so that it requires more skill to steer a gondola than it does to row, if such a thing is possible. The gondoliers display great skill in both rowing and steering, and they cut around corners and wind through openings seemingly impassable, always warning each other of their intentions by certain peculiar cries. During Venice's prosperity, gondola regattas were held and were events of great pomp and display. They took place on the Grand Canal, when the whole city gathered on its banks, or in many gondolas on its surface, and what with the music, the display of flags and banners, and the bright-coloured clothing of the colour-loving people, the spectacle certainly must have presented a scene of great brilliancy. The prizes were money 
and champion flags, and with the lowest was also given a live pig, a little pleasantry corresponding to the leather medal in American contests. Once a year, the doge, or chief ruler of Venice, and his officers went in a vessel of royal magnificence, called the Bucintora, out upon the Adriatic Sea, followed by a grand procession of gondolas, and there he dropped overboard a gold ring, after certain impressive ceremonies, thus signifying Venice's espousal with the sea and her dominion over it. This Bucintora was a two-decked vessel, propelled by 160 of the strongest rowers of the Venetian fleet. Its sides were carved and gilded, some parts gold-plated, and the whole surmounted by a gold-embroidered crimson velvet canopy. The mast is still preserved in the arsenal at Venice, but the vessel was purposely destroyed to secure its gold ornaments. It is only in the severest winters, of rare occurrence, that gondolas cannot be used, but then the young Venetians may perform the, to them, wonderful feat of walking on the water and tell of it years after. Some two hundred years ago, the ice lasted the unheard-of time of eighteen days, and such an impression did the event make upon the Venetians that the year in which it happened is known to the present day as the Anno del Ghiaccio, Year of the Ice. The Great Lily's Mission by Mrs. J. B. McConaughey Forty-three years ago, last New Year's Day, a native boat was gliding along through one of the small rivers of British Guiana when it came to a spot where the stream widened into a little lake. A celebrated botanist was a voyager in the little canoe, and all at once his attention was fixed on a wonderful plant he found growing along the margin of the lake. All his weariness and the many discomforts of his situation were forgotten in the enthusiasm of that moment. Never before had he seen such a flower. One might fancy a giant had been raising lilies to present to some fair giantess. Imagine the rippling water covered with thick leaves of pale green, lined with vivid crimson, each one almost large enough to cover your bed, while all about were floating massive lilies, whose single petals of white and rosy pink were more than a foot across, and numbered over a hundred to a blossom. The flower was sent home to England, and awakened great enthusiasm among the lovers of science, but no one surmised that the fair stranger was destined to effect a great revolution in the architecture of the world. Yet all great enterprises have generally taken a very roundabout way before they came to perfection. You could hardly forecast them when you looked at their beginnings. Such a royal lily well deserved a royal name, so it was christened the Victoria Regia. Had it been a beautiful princess they were anxious to make contented in her adopted land, they could not have taken more pains to humour her tastes and whims. Mr. Paxton, the great gardener who had it in charge, determined that the baby lily should never know that it was not in its native waters, growing in its native soil under its own torrid skies. So he made up a bed for its roots, out of burned loam and peat. The great lazy leaves were allowed to float at their ease in a tank of water, to which a gentle ripple was imparted by means of a water-wheel, and then a house of glass, of a beautiful device, was built over it all, and the right temperature kept up to still further deceive the young South American. With all this pampering, it grew so fast that in a month, it had outgrown its house. 
A new one must be had forthwith, or the baby Lily would be hopelessly dwarfed. Mr. Paxton was not disconcerted by this precociousness of his wayward pet, but at once put his talents to work to provide it with suitable accommodations. The greenhouse he next built was a more novel and elegant conservatory, and might rightly be styled the first crystal palace. It was just at this time that the word had gone out over all the earth that its nations were invited to a great world's fair at London. And now a very serious question came up about the building in which to house them. The committee, of course, decided on a structure of orthodox brick and mortar, and then began a fierce war in the papers with regard to the project. How would their beautiful Hyde Park be spoiled by letting loose in it such an army of shovelers, bricklayers, hewers, and all manner of craftsmen? What a spoiling of its ornamental trees, and what a cutting up of its smooth drives by the heavy carts loaded with brick and mortar enough to build a pyramid. Mr. Paxton read in the Times these many objections, and the thought flashed through his mind that they could all be removed by building on the plan of his lily house. A succession of such structures enlarged and securely joined together would produce just such a building as was wanted. All could be prepared in the great workshops of the kingdom and brought together with almost as little noise and confusion as was Solomon's great temple. The building committee were hard to convince. They were joined to their idols of brick and mortar. But good Prince Albert and Sir Robert Peel and Mr. Stevenson, the engineer, were all on the side of iron and glass, and at last they won. Such a beautiful fairy-like structure as went up, almost like Aladdin's palace, by New Year's Day, 1851, the world had never seen. The great Lily had, all unconsciously, accomplished a wonderful work. Over and over again has its crystal house been copied, and not the least beautiful of such structures is our own grand centennial main building. End of section 4